The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay. Hello, everyone. So uh, let us now carry on. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> is today Friday, is that right? Yeah. yeah. Wow, okay. It goes so fast. So um, uh, just maybe I should say this now while I remember. Some people asked to have a guided meditation before we end the retreat. So let's do that tonight. Should we do that at six o'clock? Is that a good idea? Before, yeah? So do that before we have the Q&A session. Yes, Master? Maybe that. Ah, okay. Okay. Is that okay? Yeah, you don't mind? Yeah, okay. Good. Yeah. So, um, okay, good. So six o'clock then. If you, and if you don't like death meditation, some people don't like it, that's okay. You don't have to like it, you know. Uh, so please don't come if you really don't want if you find death contemplation too uh, challenging or whatever, then uh, you know when it's happening, so you can do something else if you like. Uh, but now let's come back to the... Um, uh, we're going to go back to the uh, uh, shorter sutta on the elephant's footprint. So we're going back to page four, I think it is. Uh, And uh, so we have been looking at the idea of sense restraint and not in as much detail as we should because I think the whole idea of sense restraint and right effort is kind of one of the critical areas of the Buddhist path. Uh, it's where we learn how to direct our minds in the right way, how to think correctly, how to perceive correctly and all of these things. And this is really important. Uh, and this kind of stems from the idea of right view. It's the whole idea of trying to align our view of the world with how the Buddha saw the world. That's really what right effort is about. Uh, right effort and right view are very closely connected with each other. Uh, we do the right effort to try to see the world a bit more like how the Buddha saw the world. Uh, and it's a kind of continuous thing. It never really stops, right? We're always trying to move closer and closer and closer. Uh, and sometimes it's surprising. You're on this path for a long time, maybe for many years, uh, and then you realize, oh, well, jeepers, I haven't really got this, understood this properly. And suddenly, bang, wow, that's really cool. Now I got a deeper insight into these things. Uh, and sometimes you may have heard teachings that are similar, rather the same before, but it hasn't really penetrated. Uh, and suddenly you think, whoa, that's what it means. Uh. <laughs> and that's beautiful when it happens, yeah, it's really powerful, and suddenly it sinks in, and suddenly you understand something more powerfully. One of those wonderful little moments of, of a small and large insights that we can have on this path. Then. So um, uh, we're going to stop there with the right effort, huh? um, but all of the things that we often talk about on retreat, like perceptions of death, marana sanya, marana sati, huh? how to understand the world, the various similes about the shortcomings of the world, uh, um, and uh, almost everything in the suttas is, in one way or another, is about that right view and how to apply your mind uh, to achieve that right view. Uh, but um, for now we will um, stop there, and now we're going to move on to the meditation side of things. Uh,
which is the coming close to the end of the path. Meditation is the seventh factor of the path, Samma Sati, Satipatthana, and uh, we're going to talk about the lead-up to uh, Satipatthana practice. So, we have now come to the, uh, we just finished the um, Sati Sampajanya paragraph, uh, which is it called situational awareness, and now we come to the paragraph just after that one. So, two paragraphs on or on one paragraph on, depending how you look at it, from the uh, that little three uh, in the text there. So this is what it says. When they have this noble spectrum of ethics, this noble contentment, this noble sense restraint, this noble mindfulness and situational awareness, they frequent a secluded lodging. A wilderness, the root of a tree, a hill, a ravine, a mountain cave, a charnel ground, a forest, the open air, or a heap of straw. I always liked the one, the heap of straw, I found really cool. Isn't that nice? You kind of build a heap of straw and then you sit yourself on top, you're really relaxing here. So um, we have practiced ethics, yeah, we have done our very best. We have done ethics by body, by speech. We have done ethics mentally, keeping the mind pure and now all of these things are called the spectrum of ethics like the sum total of ethics all of these things have to really be done for the meditation to take off so again as i said before it's a very demanding path in buddhism and sometimes it's not surprising that people might choose another religion yeah because buddhism is just too demanding here wow they got to do so much too much hard work okay let me find something simpler <laughs> And uh, But to, to me, the fact that we have to do such hard work or that we really have to think and we have to contemplate, we have to use yoni somanesikara, we have to take charge of our own lives, uh, be responsible for ourselves. This is what makes Buddhism kind of interesting and believable and empowering for ourselves. Our lives are not in the hands of some uncertainty or some God we don't really understand or whatever, but we are in charge of our own life. There's something very w wonderful about that. Uh, and uh, it's something very empowering. And this is, but it takes co real commitment. You can see how, how much commitment actually takes when you start to understand what this is about. Uh, so there's a whole spectrum of ethics, a whole spectrum of how to apply ourselves. And uh, you notice how it's all called noble, yeah? It's called aria which is kind of really nice. It means that when you do these things, uh, you are kind of being noble. Yeah, you're on the path to nobility. <laughs> yeah, isn't that kind of marvelous? This is the higher kind of nobility, not the empty nobility of social status and these kind of things, but the nobility of the heart, the nobility of, uh, of personal growth and transforming oneself. So much of this path is about self-transformation. The whole point about the, you know, when we talk about being trapped by one's personality, you're only trapped right now. But in the long run, it is really what this is about is a transformation of one's personality, transformation of who you are, changing yourself from kind of an ordinary, defiled, limited being to something completely different, becoming like a deva in a human body. That's really what this is about, really, this path. The deva is actually what we are mentally. And that's why you get reborn as a deva in the future, because you're already a deva within, in this very life. 
So you transform yourself into a deva, and then you go beyond even that. You become a Brahma eventually. And then you become the uh, beyond that, and then you become the Arahant or whatever it is. Uh, but here you are already noble. Uh, yeah. So the extent to which you're practicing this path, uh, you are noble. What do you think? Is that nice? <laughs> it's nice, isn't it? To be have this idea that you are already practicing nobility to some extent, and then you are increasing and improving that. We are on the path to something very marvelous here. These are some of the best adjectives we can use to describe people in this world. Someone is a noble person. Yeah, of course, the real nobility is when you become a stream enter or whatever. But here, you're already on that track. This is what this is about. And a noble contentment, yeah? It's a different, it's noble because it is, doesn't have those defilement, worldly defilements. There's a peacefulness about it. There's something you're leaning in the right direction when you are noble in this way. The sense restraint, you don't allow yourself to be pulled by the senses around the world. But your senses are under, not under control, but they're under the supervision of wisdom. That's a better way of putting it. And then you are, again, you keep the evenness of the mind. You have the noble mindfulness and satisampajanya, the clear awareness or situational awareness. And then you frequent a, a secluded... Um, do, you, do you have your Pali? Oh, didn't have the Pali? Oh, okay. Well, you have to live without the Pali. Okay. Gee, that's really hard, isn't it? Uh, yeah, <laughs> we can deal with it. So... Uh, I'm not sure if lodging is the right, or maybe it is actually lodging is the right word, but I don't think that there's something wrong with that, um, what do you call that, that um, not hyphen, but uh, what do you call that thing? It's not a hyphen, is it? anyway, it's, uh, it should be, I think, lodging is only one kind of seclusion, the other ones are different kinds of seclusion here. So you go to a secluded place, yeah, secluded lodging could be even a retreat center. Yeah, a wilderness somewhere far away. The better your meditation is, the more powerful these preliminary factors are, the more ability you have to deal with seclusion. Yeah, because you have all of these good qualities inside. As you transform your personality, as you become a different person, you become far more able to deal with seclusion. This is one of the ideas behind this. And I was saying this morning, the reason why seclusion is hard for people is because we feel separated from the world. We need, people often need a bit of contact. We need to talk to somebody. Yeah? There's a feeling of, um, we don't feel entirely complete within ourselves. And that's why we need that external input. We need the external socialization to feel more complete as persons. That's why we have this need for other people. But if you purify yourself, the more you purify yourself of defilements, the more metta you have within, uh, the more you already have that connection right there. The connection is the metta, because the metta means you feel connected with the world. Uh, you feel fulfilled within. You don't have a need to socialize, to kind of feel connected. The connection comes through the metta. Yeah? And this is kind of the beauty of this. So the more metta you have, uh, the less defilements you have, the more contentment you have. Uh, these are the things that allow seclusion to happen. Uh, if you have a lot of defilements, you shouldn't be secluded because you don't overcome the defilements in seclusion. You overcome them through interacting properly in daily life. And this is what the Buddha says in the suttas. He often says this to the monks. The monks say, oh, I want to go on 
seclusion versus wait yeah <laughs> you're not ready yeah relax okay come stay with the sangha wait till you have a deep state of samadhi then you go into seclusion yeah. and i've seen this so often where people get this wrong they say oh i want to go into seclusion yeah. and when you look at them you know they're full of defilements yeah they're kind of angry character and often they want to go into seclusion because they cannot stand other people that's why they want to go into seclusion it's exactly the wrong reason for going into seclusion yeah. it's going to drive you nuts you're going to come out with big eyes kind of yeah i'm enlightened sure you are enlightened okay into the uh, kind of <laughs> This is what happens if you have too many defilements. You really literally can't tackle seclusion. You start, you start, your mind starts to go funny and you go all over the place. Too much desires, too much ill will is going to hinder you on this path. So this is why you have to do all of these things first. Then seclusion becomes possible. So you don't have to worry too much. The Newbury retreat center is not going to be you're not going to go crazy there. I, th I don't think so. You can, <laughs> I think all of you can probably handle that. And you can always talk to someone if it gets too much and these kind of things. But it is a kind of halfway house to seclusion and for. So it's wonderful that you're building this facility up there. Well done to the committee of the BSW and all the monastics at Newbury for undertaking this. It's a wonderful thing here. So... Um, you go to a secluded place, yeah, these are the kind of secluded places, an empty lodging, um, wilderness, aranya, root of a tree, a foot of a tree, rukkamula, hill, giri maybe, ravine, mountain cave, this is a giriguha, I think, charnel ground, the charnel grounds are really good because people don't like ghosts, so they don't stay at charnel grounds, so if you are not afraid of ghosts, then hang out in the charnel grounds there. <laughs> it's a good idea. No one's going to bother you in the charnel ground except the ghost. <laughs> and it's good to see ghosts, right? I was seeing ghosts is great because it gives you access to a larger reality. Yeah, most people don't believe in ghosts. Yeah, ghost superstition from the, you know, from the past or whatever. And people are so sure of themselves and they shouldn't be because the world is far more interesting than most people think yeah? and if you have a chance to see ghosts you should say thank you ghost for visiting me yeah? wonderful wow may you be well and happy yeah? here is some food for you yeah? and the ghost wise oh thank you sadhu sadhu <laughs> because it gives you an, a vision into a larger reality if you see a ghost you understand that the world is much more than we think yeah? and this is a val val very valuable gift yeah so instead of being afraid, you know, understand that you have seen something marvelous. And, uh, you know, and it's not that uncommon for people to have these kind of visions. Yeah, we have these things every now and again. People have it with their departed relatives, for example, their parents coming and seeing them after they're dead. These things are fairly common, or they come in a dream or whatever. Thank you. Dad, for seeing me after your death, this is really valuable. Well, make a deal now if you're a partner, yeah? Ken and Sue, if one of you dies, yeah? Okay, I'm going to come and haunt you after, <laughs> after I die. <laughs> I don't know, you come and haunt me after, well, if, you, if you die. If I die, I'll come and haunt you. So th this is a good idea, right? And then we're kind of we're helping each other to see the rebirth and all of those kind of things. Yeah? It usually doesn't work though because Adonis, I don't know, he's going to go, I don't know where you're going to go after you die. Probably, hopefully, go nowhere at all. 
but, <laughs> it, but if you go somewhere, then you, you go in such a high deva log. He doesn't want to come down to the see people anymore. We are so dirty compared to the devas, you know. I want to stay away from the human being, the human realm. <laughs> so you go to a secluded place. It has to be done after all this purification. Only then does meditation happen. Meditation is profound. Meditation is quite difficult in Buddhism. Yeah, A lot of what people do in daily life when they meditate is not really the meditation the Buddha is talking about. Uh, that doesn't mean that daily life meditation is not important. It is. It's still very useful. You can feel peaceful. It can calm you down and give rise to a bit of metta and all of these good qualities. And that's all very valuable. Uh, but it's not the deep thing that the Buddha is talking about, which happens in seclusion. Uh, this is very prof really profound stuff when the Buddha talks about meditation practice. And um, so this is why it is about seclusion. Uh, and what comes next now is a description of how to give up the five hindrances. Uh, and the giving up of the five hindrances is equivalent to satipatthana practice. Yeah, when you know, if you know your suttas really well, you will know that's the case because uh, satipatthana practice is juxtaposed, the opposite of the hindrances in many places. One counteracts the other. Yeah, the hindrances counteract satipatthana. Satipatthana counteracts the hindrances. Uh, so this meditation is used to overcome the hindrances. Uh, so it, it may not be obvious, it just gives you the five hindrances here. It says, this is what you overcome. It doesn't give you a context for that, it doesn't give you a framework, it doesn't say how you do it. But how you do it is through meditation. So um, what exactly are these five hindrances? And I think this is very important to understand what they are and what they are not. We assume that the five hindrances are any kind of defilements of the mind, but that is not really true. They are a particular kind of defilement of the mind. We have already abandoned heaps of defilements yeah, through sensory strength and all of these kind of things. So the five hindrances cannot refer to those things because they have already been abandoned. All the coarse stuff is already gone by the wayside. What is left when we come to meditation is only very refined hindrances. That's why it is possible to do it in seclusion. Yeah, If it was coarse, as I say, you shouldn't be in seclusion at all. So it can only refer to very refined aspects of the hindrance, of defilements. And in the suttas you see that. You see places where the five hindrances are called upakilesa, for example. They're called upakilesa. Upakilesa means a refined hindrance. Kilesa, the word kilesa, is a defilement. Upakilesa is a refined defilement. You see this, one of the very famous places you see the upakilesa is in the upakilesa sutta. Yeah? <laughs> Majimalika 128. Yeah, all the defilements. So have check it out there, and it's another very beautiful sutta. We should do it on one of these retreats. I, I think I say that on every retreat. I never never do it, but anyway, <laughs> it's a beautiful sutta on the refined defilements of the mind. And again, it's one of those suttas uh, that are biographical, autobiographical with the Buddha. Buddha talking about his own practice, what he did to purify the mind at the very end, to reach real. Samadhi. Yeah? How did the Buddha attain Samadhi? That's what he explains there. 
And what is really surprising is all the difficulties even the Buddha to be before his awakening. Even he had lots of difficulties attaining samadhi. And there he goes through the sequence of Upakalesas. And you will notice when you read that sutta that he always talks about visions, lights and visions of forms. And of course light and visions of forms are what we call Nimittas in meditation. Yeah, the nimittas, they are the nimittas. These are the things that you have when you get very close to real samadhi. Yeah. That is the light and the visions of forms. Sometimes people say, well, there is no mention of the nimittas in the suttas. Yeah, the, the lights. But actually there is. And that is one of the places where it is found. In the Upaklesa Sutta. And when you read that sutta, you see all of those really refined things, like the fear that comes when you get close to uh, a jhana state or samadhi, yeah? Things like excitement, yeah? Many people talk about that in meditation, they get excited. It's happening, it's coming, this is it. As soon as they think that, it's gone. <laughs> yeah, the, the, this is it. It's like that's the kind of, you know that you have blown it when that, when that happens. But it can be really exciting because sometimes you feel something is you're kind of moving in the right direction, yeah? And that is where you have to know that these are processes. It's got nothing to do with you. There's no point getting excited. It's kind of really silly because it's got nothing to do with you anyway. Just enjoy the process. Sit back, allow the process to happen to you, and then you're on the right track, yeah? So, and then there is um, doubts happening, yeah? And the Buddha talks about a bit of restlessness and the, uh, too much contemplation of forms, he talks about. All of these kind of things are find, found in the Upaklesa Sutta. But it's very clear that they are the refined hindrances uh, that happen before you enter Samadhi and before the jhanas. Uh. That is one context for that. Another context is in the Vatupama Sutta. In the Majjhima number seven, I think it is, the simile of the cloth. Yeah, very beautiful sutta of the simile of the cloth. Uh, you, you can, you'd have to dye a cloth. It has to be when the cloth is fully pure, and only then does it take the dye properly. You have to wash the cloth properly. And, um, and that's the same with the mind. For the mind to be dyed with the inside of the Dhamma, yeah, to gain that understanding, it has to be absolutely pure. No stains, no malla, no, no kind of these bad things uh, that uh, block access to those insights. So again, it's about refined defilements of the mind. There's a long list there of defilements, uh, conceits and what have you, all this kind of stuff. Uh. So this is the same for the five hindrances in the suttas. It's an important thing to remember that. Uh, these are refined defilements. Uh, they're not just any kind of wild fantasy or ill will that you have. Uh, that's abandoned a long time ago already. Uh. So what does it mean, a refined defilement? What does it mean? So let's, have a, let's have a look at this now. Let's read it out. And then we can discuss a little bit what these refined defilements actually refer to. Uh. So after after hanging out on the heap of straw for a while. Yeah, actually, no, that's what you're doing now, you hang out on the heap of straw. It's kind of nice, isn't it? They were, again, this gives you the idea that they were comfortable. Yeah, they were at ease. You build up a heap of straw, and then you sit on the heap of straw. It's not some super ascetic practice um, or anything like that. Anyway, so after the meal, they return from arms around, sit down cross-legged, with their body straight and establish, establish mindfulness right there. Standard instruction that you find both for also in the Anapanasati Sutta, exactly the same instruction you find in both. Yeah, 
So you know this is now real meditation. Real meditation happens when you sit down. It does not happen in daily life. Satipatthana happens too when you sit down, just like Anapanasati, because these are two ways of talking about the same experience of meditation. Cross-legged. Uh, don't have to sit cross-legged if you don't want to. Yeah, this is just a way. It's a, it's a nice posture, but you don't have to sit cross-legged. So... Uh, uh, body straight, yeah. Your body tends to straighten by itself as your mindfulness is established, and then you establish mindfulness right there in the present. Uh, you bring it into the present, both in time and in space. Uh, so it is right here. Uh, yeah. So basically, what you're doing now, you're doing anapanasati practice. You're doing mindfulness of breathing here, yeah. because now it says giving up desire for the world. Uh, they meditate with a heart rid of desire, cleansing the mind of desire. And the way, it doesn't tell you how to give it up. Yeah, it doesn't say anything. So how is it given up? And because we are already here doing meditation practice, we're doing mindfulness of breathing, then the very process of mindfulness of breathing lends itself to giving up the defilements of the mind. Yeah. These defilements are supported by your interest in them. You're interested in the world. You're interested in sensory impressions. You're interested in these kind of defilements. And because you're interested in it, your mind goes there. But by staying with your breath, you're not allowing the mind the space to think about those things. Because it isn't allowed that space, then sensory desire has to be sustained it has to be fed to keep going if you stop feeding it by watching the breath it's going to gradually die down so watching the breath actually gradually gradually if you do that if your mind is ready that is sufficient to reduce the defilements of the mind but it's not it's not always enough so what Exact, what exactly are these defilements at this stage? I was saying these are very refined defilements. They're not the kind of ordinary stuff that we deal with in everyday life. And so what they are? Well, first of all, they are, of course, occasionally sensory impressions will come. Desires will arise in the mind Yeah, that are. But they are quite relatively weak and they're relatively easy to overcome once you come to meditation practice. So that is one thing that happens in meditation. Another thing that happens that is more important uh, is that there are underlying attachments that you have. Uh, these underlying attachments are just an attachment to this world. Uh, the attachments to be able to see, the attachment to hear, the attachment to feel your body. And when you, all of these things are fading away, you can feel there's something in you that resists. Yeah, we may not even feel it because it's just that your meditation stops. It doesn't go any deeper. Why does it stop? Because your mind won't allow you to go deeper because you are attached to this. So this is what sensory desire, or in this case, it is called uh, uh, desire for the world. This is what it means in the deeper sense. Yeah, it is not that you are thinking about all kinds of stuff. And people often say, I don't understand, I have no defilement in the mind, but it doesn't go deeper. And this is the reason. You don't need to have a, a risen defilement. All you need to have is this underlying attachment that holds on to that world. And this is where the idea of contemplating the downside of the world is very useful. 
Because if the world is not interesting, if the world is full of war and problems, and these things are recurring all the time, people dying and all kinds of things, that whole world is no longer interesting. And if that world is no longer interesting, it means that seeing itself is no longer interesting, because seeing is precisely how we interact with that world. That's how that world affects us. Hearing is no longer interesting, and the whole five senses lose their interest and and um, their um, te- hold o- o- on our minds. And this is how you let go of these things, yeah? gradually understanding the limits of that world. Uh, this is kind of part and parcel of the Buddhist path. Uh, and this is where it is really profound. Uh, but of course, what you access is far superior to what you had before. Uh, and you know that already, because as you go deeper in meditation, you know, you feel great. yeah. So getting rid of the world actually is a good thing. Yeah? So this is what this means, and this is why in the Satipatthana Sutta it starts off with contemplation of the body, 31 parts of the body. Or is it 32? What? You said 32. Any, 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 any others? Who said 31? Who said 32? 32? 31. Wow. You you are you are really well learned in the suttas. Thirty-one is correct, right? And this is this is a test for people to see: Are you following the commentaries? Are you following the suttas? Those people who really follow the suttas, they know thirty-one. Those people who follow the Visuddhimagga say thirty-two. It's a test. It shows you how influenced we are by the commentaries. We don't even know that this is the case. Go back, uh, Sujit. Sujit, right? Rajit. 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 Okay, Rajit. Raji. Rajiv, Rajiv, okay, Rajiv. <laughs> Eventually I'll get it right, yeah, Rajiv. Go back and count, count them, yeah? And uh, then you see 31, uh, and anyway. I'm just, it's, it's just fascinating, because uh, the reason why I like this test is just to show that when we read the suttas, we tend to read it through the filter of the commentaries. Uh, and this is almost all Buddhist publications, unless you actually read the sutta and you count the number yourself. Unless you do that, you will, you, you will filter everything through books that we read and what people say, and all of that is usually based on the commentaries. It shows how reliant we are on the commentaries. It's not that it matters whether it's 31 or 32, it's completely irrelevant. But it shows you the how powerful the commentaries' influence are on how we think about the suttas. And this is very useful to know, because it means that when you read the suttas, read them carefully, because chances are that you have been influenced by the commentaries in the past. Just by reading a translation, you are influenced by the commentaries, yeah? Because how do people translate? They translate by looking at the commentaries to, to understand what is going on. So just reading the translation already, you are in slightly dodgy territory. <laughs> It's hard, right? It's really tough to be a, be a Buddhist who reads the suttas because we are so conditioned by these other textual layers, by all the people who um, interpret these things in various ways. It's very hard to completely get out of that, uh, these things. So, um, and of course, when I speak, I think that I speak with no commentaries at all. But of course, that's completely wrong, because what you're getting is my commentary instead, right? Uh, that's what, all that happens. So you don't, may not get that commentary, you get my commentary. and So you, it's impossible to get completely rid of the commentaries. Uh, but it's good to at least have that awareness when you read. Yeah? So you know, wait a minute, uh, how does this actually all work together? Huh? And then you start to get a better understanding.
So uh, this is what is meant yeah, by this idea of um, a desire for the world. Yeah? The world here really means the world of the five senses. Kama loka, kama avachara, as it's called in the suttas. Uh, avachara is like the sphere, the sphere of the sensory world. Yeah? And um, uh, so you, so if so, this is one reason why we find that in the Satipatthana Sutta, the thirty-one parts of the body, because it allows us to let go a little bit more of that world. Uh, Satipatthana Sutta also has the five elements contemplation, which is a little bit less challenging for some. Yeah, you can do that. Body is the five, el- five, five, ele- four elements. Five, yeah, not not five. Uh, yeah, six or four, but in this case it's four. Yeah, and uh, then you have the cemetery. Don't do the cemetery contemplations. They are scary. They are kind of oh, it's too much. But uh, five, el- four elements is great. Uh, try that one if you wish. Uh, so and then you let go of some of the attachment, uh, and that allows you access to the breath more easily. Uh, and you are giving up desire more and more. You go deeper and deeper. Uh, if you feel that you pl- come to a plateau, it doesn't go deeper. Do some contemplation to allow you to release some of your hold on that world. Uh, sense desire. Okay, giving up ill will and malevolence. Uh, they meditate with a mind rid of ill will, full of compassion for all living beings, uh, cleansing the mind of ill will. So uh, sometimes the mind does not have enough metta or kindness within. Yeah? And sometimes it may not be that you have any direct ill will against someone. Oh, I hate that person. That is that is very coarse kind of ill will. Uh, but it's more like the mind is not fully boosted up with uh, good qualities. Uh, yeah, it's more like that. Uh, so uh, you do a bit of compassion. Have more compassion for the world. Uh, see people in a brighter, more beautiful way, uh, and all of these kind of things. Have more metta all around. Boost up those piti sukha within. Uh, uh, Pamoja and all of these kind of things, and as you do that, uh, you have less ill will in general. Really, if you have practiced metta really, really well, uh, then uh, you should have very little ill will, even in daily life. Uh, yeah, very rare to arise, uh, and so this is a, a sign that you are on the right track. Look at your mind in uh, ordinary life, and you will find out. Uh, so um, then we have the giving up of dullness and drowsiness. Uh, they meditate with a mind rid of dullness and drowsiness, perceiving light, mindful and aware, cleansing the mind of dullness and drowsiness. So um, uh, here we come to the more kind of really refined hindrances. This is the first time we come across dullness and drowsiness. It hasn't been mentioned at all so far, because it really only, it does manifest, of course, earlier on, but earlier on we should focus on the aversion and the desire. We focus on the two main hindrances, because they are the root of all the other stuff. Yeah, but here it's kind of it's almost as if dullness and drowsiness, tinamida, gets has a life of its own. Yeah, you have dullness and drowsiness. It is often related to the first two hindrances, but here it also has a little bit of a life of its own when it gets very refined. And um, sometimes it uh, 
can come for all kinds of reasons. It can be the, the sense of self. Yeah, I mean, It's not just desire that leads to dullness and drowsiness, but it's also the sense of self. The sense of self is also a big hindrance in this kind of process. The next one is about restlessness. And of course, when it comes to restlessness, the sense of self is a very important source of that restlessness. The sense of self wants to do. The sense of self wants to be heard. It doesn't want to be too quiet. It wants to say, here I am. And this kind of stuff is, is problematic. So uh, dullness and drowsiness, uh, you, you will notice here that the way to overcome that is to perceive light, to be mindful and aware. Yeah. So you do things that give rise to the opposite in the suttas. They say you do things like developing pity and gladness, pamoja, and these kind of qualities. You contemplate something which is nice, yeah, something which uplifts the mind, and that then abandons the dullness and the drowsiness as you do that. Ideally, it depends on how deep it is, how profound it is, and how problematic yeah, it is. But uh, if it is a light kind of drowsiness, then you can overcome it that way. Perceiving light, yeah? This is like the, this is not the nimitta, but this is like just the mind being bright and clear, uh, mindful and aware. Uh, so here we have uh, Satyasampajanya becoming very strong, yeah? The strong kind of sati, not the preliminary one, but the strong one. Restlessness and remorse, you overcome that, another one of these hindrances. Uh, and uh, again, you just stay with the object. Gradually, gradually, it kind of, uh, you overcome it. Restlessness and remorse. This is just the movement of the mind. Remorse is um, something that makes you restless because when you have remorse, you don't really want to be in the present. Yeah, The present is kind of un unpleasant because you have some remorse from the past. So don't have remorse. Yeah, In other words, don't do anything dodgy. Stop. <laughs> I don't think anyone here does dodgy things, but you know what I mean? Sometimes we kind of get sidelined, sidetracked by life. Life kind of lures us into dodgy situations, but uh, reduce those to the absolute minimum, huh? because then you will have no remorse in your meditation practice. Remember here that the idea of remorse is a very deep idea in Buddhism. Kukucha. It also means like anxiety almost. Yeah? And one way of translating it is actually anxiety, restlessness and anxiety. You're a bit anxious about what you have done. Yeah, you shouldn't have done that. And you feel a bit uncertain about the consequences of what this is going to, what is it going to lead me? What is it going to do to me? Yeah. In the suttas, they, um, you always have the monks, when they uh, break a rule of the Vinaya, the uh, monastic rules, they have kukucha. They have anxiety. They think, oh, could it be that I have broken this rule? That's how they think. Could I have done a paragic offense? Jeepers. <laughs> and then they go to the Buddha and they say to the Buddha, have I, have I done a paragic offense? And the Buddha says, relax. Yeah, here, you're, you're okay. Yeah? Not always. Sometimes they say, don't relax. You have done a paragic. Out you go. But usually it's like, okay, relax. Yeah, there's this and this reason why you haven't done a paragic. So you're okay. Yeah. Because usually we tend to think that you have done things something really bad when actually it turns out it's not as bad as you thought. Uh, yeah, you stole something, but it, you didn't really. You thought it was yours, yeah. So, you, but actually it belonged to someone else. Oh no, I committed a parajika because it did belong to someone else. Uh, 
Well, now if you thought it was yours, it cannot be a project. Oh, okay, and then you, you're off and you're, you're okay. Yeah. That's often how it goes. But that is the anxiety, yeah? And that's kind of remorse. So they're not quite the same, but they are kind of similar, closely related states, agitated states of mind. So live as well as you can, minimize these things. You give up doubt, then meditate having gone beyond doubt, not undecided about skillful qualities, cleansing the mind of doubt. So doubt is very specific in Buddhism. It means the understanding of what is skillful and what is unskillful. And that doubt is completely vichikicca, is completely given up uh, when you enter a samadhi state. You enter a jhana state, no more doubt. Because you have seen all unwholesome qualities have been abandoned. Yeah, When you enter a jhana, all that is left are wholesome qualities of the mind. All the hindrances are gone. Now you know what a fully pure mind means. Before you get to a jhana state, you don't know yet. You're still struggling to get there. What is blocking me? My meditation is going really well. I'm just, not, I can't see any hindrances at all. Everything is just so wonderful, but I can't move forward. In other words, you don't understand what is unskillful in that mind state. You don't understand what you are holding on to. Yeah? This is what this means. So doubt here is like, um, it's not really doubt in the ordinary sense. It's more like not having full understanding, really, of the hindrances. You don't really know where they are. Yeah? You can see how doubt is almost a bit misleading, or it can be misleading. Yeah? So this is uh, the idea. So how do you overcome that doubt? Well, really, it is about investigating. What, what, why am I holding on? Also, you can kind of have faith in the Buddha. The Buddha says, well, probably you're holding on to the five senses and the body. Okay, so let's contemplate those five senses and the body a bit and see what happens. So you can overcome the doubt by faith in that way, or you can overcome the doubt by investigating and trying to understand where you are holding on, where the problem is. And uh, the whole process of meditation in general helps us to overcome these defilements. Often you don't have to do all that much. You just stay with the breath and see what happens. Come out of the meditation afterwards, then ask yourself why it worked, why it didn't work. That's how you uncover the five hindrances, how you understand how they block you and how their absence supports you in your meditation. Do the meditation, watch the breath, come out, then reflect on what happened. Yeah, and over time, this will give you all the information you need to take your meditation forward. So these are the five hindrances. Now, as I have been saying, the real way to overcome these is to practice meditation. So now what I want to do is to turn to meditation proper, which this year we're going to look at the Satipatthana Sutta. In brief, because there's only one day left, so it won't be very long, but it will be enough to get a good idea what it is about. Oh, so many pages. Oh, okay, page 19. 19, 1, 9. <clears throat> so this is the famous Satipatthana Sutta. 
and I have translated Satipatthana as the applications of mindfulness. Is that a correct translation or is it wrong? Sujeev? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> ah, now you have... Yeah, that's a wisdom arising. That's very good. Huh? We have, <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a Hindu. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. 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 It's good. It's marvelous. Wonderful to have you here. We're very happy to have you here. It's great. Yeah. And it's nice to have someone. It's not okay to have opinions, you know. It's not. It's not bad to have opinions. So that's perfectly fine. So it's just that. Um, yeah, but it's an interesting question. What does Satipatthana actually mean? And is application of mindfulness the appropriate translation? It's actually a very interesting question. And the reason why it is interesting is because it gives us an idea what we're supposed to do. Yeah, And when you translate it in the right way, it actually helps us to understand what the teaching is about. And one of the typical translations of Satipatthana is the foundations of mindfulness. Yeah? You see this very commonly, especially older translations, uh, maybe not so much anymore, but uh, if you go back just a few years, uh, English translation used to be a foundation of mindfulness. Uh, and what that tells you, uh, foundation of mindfulness, uh, is that um, it means that this is how you get mindfulness. If something is the foundation of mindfulness, it's, it is about how you Get how do you become mindful, right? But that is actually misleading. It's not really how you become mindful, because the first six factors of the Noble Eightfold Path, they are about how you become mindful. And once you come to Satipatthana, well, then you apply that mindfulness, you use that mindfulness to do the meditation. Yeah, so here it is more correct to say the focus is of mindfulness or the applications of mindfulness which I use here sometimes the establishments of mindfulness is also okay yeah maybe not ideal but it's not it's not bad but it's it's how we use mindfulness how we apply that this really is about and um, uh, so this is the first thing to notice one of the very important things about the uh, Satipatthana Sutta is that it is uh, a sutta which has been shown to have been added to quite a lot in the history of Buddhism. And this is a very interesting work that has been done by people who are more are quite of a scholarly kind of character, people like Venerable Analayo and especially Bhante Sujato, who have uh, Bhante Sujato has written a book called The History of Mindfulness. Has anyone read The History of Mindfulness? You have to be very brave to read the history of mindfulness. <laughs> I have read it. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm brave. Or maybe it's just because I've been a monk for a long time. Kind of a bit different. But it's a very interesting book. Uh, once you kind of get past the, uh, how difficult it might seem. But, uh, and very interesting because what he does, he takes all the various sources for Satipatthana, the various schools of early Buddhism, and he compares them with each other and then tries to sort out what is actually the, probably the earliest, uh, the earliest form of Satipatthana practice, what the Buddha most likely taught. And that's really interesting, because what do you want to hear? Do you want to hear what the Buddha taught? Or do we want to hear about some, what someone else taught, many who we don't even know who is later on? Well, I'd rather hear what the Buddha taught, yeah? 
I don't know who these other monks or people are who I have added things. And um, what is interesting is that uh, the things that have been added to the Satipatthana Sutta, we may th- it doesn't look, it looks very kind of innocuous. It doesn't look like it's a big deal. Yeah, what's the problem? Well, the weird thing is that as soon as you start adding things, uh, you start to change the practice. You start to change how things are considered. And uh, this is very obvious once you start to look at the Satipatthana. So let me talk a little bit about that right away, because this is kind of really interesting. Yeah? Now, one of the things that you will know about the Satipatthana Sutta is that in the, it's divided into four parts, right? Contemplation of the body comes first. Then you have contemplation of feeling. Body is called Kaya Nupassana, feelings Vedana Nupassana. Third one is the Chitta Nupassana, contemplation of mind or mind states. And the fourth one is Dhamma Nupassana, contemplation of, of Dhamma. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Kora. <laughs> so, yeah, Dhamma, or how do we translate Dhamma? Phenomena is what, yeah, phenomena is one way of translating it. Uh, Ajahn Sudato has the translation principles, which also is quite nice because Dhamma in the Indian language is, is like almost like law of nature, these kind of things. It's a very broad kind of word, which means a lot of things. So it has, there's four Satipatthanas, as we shall see. The first one is Kaya Nupassana, contemplation of body. Within the contemplation of body, there are six aspects to that. Yeah, starts off with the mindfulness of breathing. Then you have the four postures. Then you have Satisampajanya. Then you have the 31 parts of the body. Then you have the four elements. And then you have the number six is the cemetery contemplations. Yeah, or the charnel ground contemplation. The six aspects to it. Now, Bhantasujato, through his analysis, he reckons that only one of those six is original. The other five are maybe may not spoken by the Buddha. Some of them are more likely to be original than others because they occur in more sources. And the one thing that's original is the 31 parts of the body. Which is kind of really interesting, yeah, right? Second most likely to be original is the four elements because it exists in many places. The third most likely is cemetery contemplation. And all of these things are very closely related to each other. They are about understanding the downside of the body. Yeah, This is what it is about. And it fits very well with the idea of early in the meditation process, you want to give up the body more. So it makes sense that you want to give up some of the downside of the body. You want to give up the body, yeah. You want to understand the downside of the body to give it up. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> so this is uh, so it kind of makes sense, yeah. But of those, the most important one is the 31 parts of the body, most likely to be original. What that means is that mindfulness of breathing, for example, is probably not original to the Kaya Nupasana. People say, but how is that? How can that be? Isn't mindfulness of reading one of the fundamental ways of practicing Satipatthana? Well, the reason why it is not part of Kaya Nupasana is because it, it belongs to the whole of Satipatthana. It should not be placed only in one place as part of the first part. It should be part of the entire range of practices going Kaya Nupasana, Veda Nupasana, Chitta Nupasana, and Dhamma Nupasana. That's why it does not belong in the first uh, of these four. 
Once you put it in the first of these four, it looks like mindfulness of breathing is a preliminary thing you do, and then you go on to Vedana Nupasana, which is more advanced. That's what it looks like. Yeah? If you only read the Satipatthana Sutta, and this is quite common, people only read this one sutta, very, very common in the Buddhist world. And if you only read that one sutta, you will be you will be deluded as to what's going on. You won't get the right information. Because you go to the Anapanasati Sutta, it specifically says, do mindfulness of breathing. It fulfills all Satipatthana, all the four areas. So this, so what, what does this mean in practice? Well, what it means in practice is that you get meditation teachers who say, okay, you uh, watch the breath for a while, the breath is just a preliminary thing, and then you go to the feelings of the body afterwards. Very, very common meditation instruction in the world. And it comes from this problem. Yeah? This is where it arises from. Reading the Satipatthana Sutta in isolation, not understanding that this probably is a later addition, which doesn't belong there. Mindfulness of breathing belongs to the whole thing here. So, so you know, in one way, it seems innocuous. What's the problem of bringing in mindfulness of breathing? Yeah, mindfulness of breathing is part of Satipatthana. It seems like a natural thing to do. It doesn't seem like a main problem. If you go to the Kayagata Sati Sutta, yeah, <laughs> the Sutta which is after the Anapanasati Sutta, Majjhimanika 119, there in Kayagata Sati Sutta, it has mindfulness of breathing as well. And there it kind of fits, because there it is only about mindfulness to the body. But in Satipatthana Sutta, it is, it leads, every time you add something, you're also changing a little bit of the feeling of a sutta. There are always unintended consequences of what you do. And we can see those unintended consequences in Buddhism, when people then say, just watch the breath in the beginning, it is a preliminary exercise, then you watch the feelings in the body. And I think that loses many people. You lose the real path of meditation when you do that, uh, and you end up not going very far at all. Uh, I think it's really problematic. This is what I mean by evolution of the text and how this affects how we think about Buddhism, how we think about the practice of the path. Uh. Are people able to follow what I say? Is it making sense? Yeah? Okay, yeah. It's okay not if you can't follow that's okay you know I don't have to you're not obliged to follow what I say if you don't uh, just uh, sometimes I to me it seems really clear but I know what I but what other people it you know it's it's different sometimes uh, yeah so that's one aspect of this the other aspect which I have talked about already which I want to mention very briefly is the aspect of the four postures and also the sati sampajanya part of Satipatthana, yeah, the next two ways of practicing the Kaya Nupasana, the contemplation of the body, is the four postures and the uh, Sati Sampajanya, the awareness of the daily activities. But as I have just mentioned, this probably does not belong to the earliest Satipatthana Sutta, right? So, and, and the problem is that, uh, again, it, does, it doesn't seem like a big problem. Why, why is that a problem? That, that goes into the Satipatthana Sutta. We are just aware of our daily activities. That's probably fine. It's not a big deal. But actually, it makes a big difference. We have just seen that Satipatthana practice, yeah, with giving up the five hindrances, happens in meditation. After you sit down, after you cross your legs, but suddenly now we're looking at, you know, you, are, you have clear awareness when you go out, when you come back, when you eat, 
when you talk, <laughs> when you go to the toilet, all of these kind of things. Yeah, and we were discussing today why is toilet business in the clear comprehension? And it, it occurred to me later on that I think maybe the reason is that uh, is this idea in Buddhism about being realistic about the body, yeah? what the body is really like. Yeah, this idea of not being too attached to the body, and the kind of toilet business is this stuff that we're not usually proud of when it comes to the body. We rather kind of hush that up. Okay, we don't mention those things. Uh, in polite society, you don't talk about that. Uh, you just go behind a closed door when you have to. Uh, that's kind of uh, where that. Uh, so, but this is being. We want to be realistic, yeah. And this is kind of the Buddhist Buddhist way. Uh. So, what it means, it downgrades the idea of satipatthana, where satipatthana is really a very profound practice of meditation that you do when you cross your legs, you watch the breath, you experience bliss, and all of these kind of things. It takes you to samadhi. That is really what satipatthana is about. It downgrades it to become something we do in daily life instead. And that downgrading is very dangerous because every time you downgrade something, you not only do you downgrade that thing, but there is a risk that you downgrade everything on the path. Suddenly, meditation becomes something less than it was before because meditation becomes less. The result of meditation, the samadhi, becomes something less. It's a lesser kind of samadhi because the samadhi is reduced, the idea of nibbana is reduced. Everything kind of tends to lose its profundity when you. When one factor loses its profundity, everything that comes after also loses it. So these are these are very real dangers. Not just that, but what it means, it also it means that you know people think that they are doing satipatthana practice in daily life. You just are aware of washing your dishes or going to work or whatever it is. You have awareness at all times, and then you get this idea that awareness itself builds awareness because in satipatthana it doesn't say anything about sense restraint it just talks about being aware you are aware of this aware of that and it gives the rise to this idea that we talked about before that awareness builds awareness but no in daily life it is not awareness that builds awareness it is a specific kind of awareness awareness of the defilements awareness of the problems so you can get you can avoid those snakes, like Ajahn Brahm says. Yeah, don't step on those snakes, because that's what ill will is. That's what some of these things are. They are snakes. You step on them, and they bite you, and you hurt afterwards. So by using mindfulness in the appropriate way, rather than just being mindful as such, that is when we are purifying the mind, and the mind will be ready when we come back to sit down on the cushion. So these are some of the problems. Yeah, If we get these things wrong and we don't understand what really belongs in Satipatthana, what does, it leads to misunderstandings such as these. So four postures does not belong in the Satipatthana. It belongs to a preliminary practice. The um, same thing with Satisampajanya, all of the things that we're doing, doing here, belongs to something previous. We have already talked about this before, yeah? It was just there. And it belongs to the idea of right effort of purifying the mind. And then comes Satipatthana. And Satipatthana then is, yes, it is about mindfulness of breathing, of course. The whole thing is, it is also about overcoming some of the attachments to the world and the body and the senses and all of these kind of things. So it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Uh, sometimes it's too interesting. People say, "Oh, how can I? How can we remember all of this? This is too too difficult. We, 
You know, we, we want to have it simple. Okay, simple, let's watch the breath. That's the simple, uh, simple version here. <laughs> so, uh, I, I, you know, I'm saying all of these things simply because uh, the result of all of this is not that complicated. Uh, I'm saying this because I need to make the case, because there are so many forces that go in the opposite direction. So I need to make a case. And if you think the case is boring, or you don't believe what I say, or you think it's just, uh, or you find it too complicated, that's okay. You don't, you know, you don't really have to worry too much about these things. Uh, the main thing is that we need to practice sila in a profound way, purify the mind as much as we can in ordinary life, and then we can do anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing, well when it comes to meditation. That's really, that's kind of the outcome of this. The outcome is very simple. It's just that it takes a lot of investigation to get to that simple outcome. Simplicity is complicated. <laughs> okay, that's perfect timing. It's exactly three o'clock. So uh, let's stop there. And uh, then I will come back, we'll do some meditation together at six o'clock. And then we'll continue with the Q&A and everything. And then tomorrow we will do a speed course of Satipatthana tomorrow. Uh, yeah. Okay, let's just pay respect to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha.